are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Anything's possible. Live from kind of a depressing place, it's the 252. Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett. joined by... Chris Moore in political science. And Sam Mulberry in history. And I just thought we should acknowledge right away that this is... Um, there, there's a cloud hanging over this week in this episode. Uh, as I think a lot of our... Certainly our students, a lot of alumni, other listeners know there were um, some sad announcements given this week at Bethel. Some of our colleagues are losing their positions after a year. So if we sound yeah. a little bit less chipper and happy-go-lucky than usual. Just just understand that that's, that's part of it. And please join us in praying for some really difficult transitions um, personally and institutionally that people are going through. But that said, we have a podcast to do. We're excited about what we're talking about this week. Kind of our big theme really is the Olympics. Uh, not necessarily this year's Olympics, although we've talked about that before, and we're certainly going to come back to talk about what's going on next year's Olympics. <laughs> Um, but we're going to talk about uh, Olympic history. That's been our theme in class. We're going to talk about a book that students have been reading and is really more in Dr. Moore's wheelhouse as an international relations specialist. Uh, let's start, though, by picking mm -hmm. up where we left off last time. Chris, I think on our last episode, we had mentioned that students were going to be writing midterm essays. One of them was a hypothetical scenario we gave them in which a Bethel donor had offered new president Ross Allen $10 million if Bethel would jump from Division Three of NCAA athletics to Division One, yes. students had to do some reading, think through, respond to what we said, and then essentially make a recommendation. Yes, take the money, move to D1. No, turn down $10 million, stay D3. Uh, so I think we both can admit we have not actually graded all of these essays quite yet, but we did go through and tabulate okay. the results. Chris, can I, give, uh, can I give you a little pat on the back, though? Uh, please. Yeah. It seems like the right sneaker for pats in the back. One of my students, as I was grading them, uh, wrote, this is the best question I've ever had to essay, answer for an essay at any time at Bethel. <laughs> I will so. say, like, we'll, we'll see how the score has turned out. I was pretty happy with just, like, glancing at the Like, they clearly took it seriously. A lot of them not only were using the sources we gave, but they had done additional research. They looked right. at, like, mission statements. They looked at, like, budgets of other athletic departments to see – are they money makers, money losers? And uh, anyway, let's just kind of give the final results. We, we split sure. our groups in half. So Chris, you took our first five groups. What was their vote? Okay, do you want to do this by the by subsections or do you want to just add all the votes together? Well, I guess we could just add them. There's, I mean, there's real okay. no, there's no difference. It's a random assembly of groups. So, so put them together, we get. Sure. We get, um, out of our total uh, student population, uh, 58 of them said, uh, stay in division three, don't take $10 million to upgrade to division one. Nine students said, yes, take the money and run. Um, that's a huge difference. 58 to nine, man, like, uh, historic math. That's like, uh, six or seven to one, six and a half to one, right? That's yes, exactly. I mean, are you surprised by this or this? Yeah, very okay. surprised. Okay. I thought we had crafted and, and there's always a, you know, with questions like this, and, and by the way, those these, uh, Chris and Sam know me well. I love hypothetical questions. It's just, it's one of my love languages. Preaching um, to the choir. I think I said last time, imagine is my favorite verb to start an essay yep. question. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I love crafting questions like this that are what I consider like hard questions. Mm -hmm. So making it $10 million is a lot of money. And just getting kind of that point where, uh, 
it's a it's a really tough call. If you had said a hundred million dollars, well, then clearly you just have to do it, right? That's not an interesting question. If you said a hundred thousand dollars, you're just not going to do it. It's not enough money to make that work. So it's kind of finding that sweet spot. And I thought we found the sweet spot, but clearly not. Um, overall, students just re roundly rejected this, and I wonder now. What I want to ask them as a follow-up is, how high would that number have to be before we would get to the 50-50 mark? I think that's a fascinating question, because my sense is that I mean, there are lots of reasons given for the turn it down. But I would say almost everyone that I read who said that, at least part of it was they didn't think that was enough money. The, right. as they thought about all that was entailed. Uh, you know, They wrote about facilities. Uh, Royal Stadium does not quite cut it, charming as right. it is. Uh, but they also talk about the expense of recruiting. They talk about travel, uh, all the other kind of ancillary things you don't even think about. Um, it, it just didn't seem that that was enough. Now, I mean, I think those who voted pro kind of took the sense like it would be a good enough start. If we get that, we would get more. Right. Uh, but it becomes I, at a least prophecy. Exactly. I mean, and, but at least a couple actually pointed out their sense was Bethel didn't have a great fundraising track record. And <laughs> fair or unfair, like it does create questions like that. And so it does make me wonder what if we had made it 20 million? Would, would that have yeah. bought us like half those votes back? Right. Um, but that was not the only issue raised. I mean, I, it was really interesting, especially because 60% of our class are Division three student athletes to think about how mm -hmm. they responded. And you know, some tried to be very distanced from the question. Some did think about what it would mean for themselves. Yeah, several of my students said, basically issued like a self-disclosure statement, like I am a member of the golf team or I am a member of the yeah. football team. And I'm aware that if we move from Division three to Division one, I would no longer be a member of that team. Exactly. And that became part of their calculus. So that was part of it. And then, I mean, I think the, the the very best of the answers was when they really started to get admission, right? And we had kind of fed them some things. Others had tried to go to, well, what is the athletic department really trying to accomplish in the larger mission of Bethel as a Christian liberal arts university? Uh, people wrote about like student-faculty relationships, the nature of community, how that would change. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, I thought generally they, they took it really seriously. It was a hard enough question that even if we could have, you know, manipulated the results with a higher donor gift, like, I think it still would be a hard question because it's not a clear cut call. Um, the only other thing that occurred to me, Chris, is just coincidentally, I didn't realize this was happening, but uh, the timing of this overlapped with what apparently is called D3 week. I started noticing yes. on Bethel's social media, and I think maybe on our faculty listserv, uh, some of our coaches, athletic directors, were talking about Division Three week, and, and student athletes mm -hmm. were posting about why they love Division Three. And I wonder if that did maybe mildly move the needle a little bit towards let's right. stay in Division Three. It's wonder because it is a very distinctive thing that doesn't occur to most people because television and other media have shaped our impression that then NCAA is power conference, Division One football and basketball. Right. And Division Three, and, and certainly the Olympic sports generally uh, are, are not quite the, the same kind of culture necessarily. Yeah. In, in some ways, I think if, to the extent that most people who are not part of the university world think about Division Three, they think of it as sort of this quaint appendage of the NCAA. And the NCAA is really, and it's true in terms of budget, it really mm -hmm. is about Division One power conferences. And this is really, in some ways, philosophically closest to what the NCAA was about, right. but also institutionally farthest from what it actually does these days. Yeah, it certainly makes it a harder question. It, it makes it harder for academics like us to criticize athletics at the Division three level. We don't have the kind of easy outs of, well, they're, they're just professional athletes, you know, the guise of students. Like our, right. 
or, or student athletes spend a lot of time in athletics, but they are still students in every single major you can imagine. Um, and they take seriously the kind of whole person education. And I think our coaches are like that too. Can uh, I ask you a question, Chris? Yeah, I, please. Um, you are, uh, you often think deeply about the nature of liberal arts. And this, I was part of this question. And I had several students who pretty pointedly said, you can't be a Christian division one school. Yep. Um, and there are, there are schools that purport Christian missions uh, at division one, right? right, uh, right. Baylor, Liberty now. Yep. What do you think of that response? I think you can be a Christian research university in division one. Like I know enough people who are graduate and undergraduate students at the University of Notre Dame to know that that is a place that takes academics seriously, that is a leading research institution, that has a very different kind of understanding of Christian mission because it's rooted in a Catholic understanding. So right. it would, I mean, I think our students, you know, it'd be interesting for them to kind of read a little bit more about that. But I, I know it enough to know that like, it is taken seriously. It's debated often. Mm -hmm. It's taken seriously, and I'm not. I think football, for example, complicates that in all the ways that it complicates most of these places. I mean, the debates we've had about its inherent violence and such. But you know, I, I think of Notre Dame as a serious, meaningfully Christian, academically elite research university. Now, a research university is not the same thing, though, as a liberal arts college, right? Which does not exist necessarily primarily for um, you know. Um, uh, developing new knowledge for serving professional sector, for being on the cutting edge in technology and business, for generating the new leaders of industry and politics. Uh, I, I do wonder whether it's consistent with the kind of ethos and goals of the relatively small communities that I think it takes to really do Christian liberal arts well. Um, yeah, I, I think like, I mean, if I'm being honest, like I have my doubts about Bethel as a Christian liberal arts place simply because of the kind of disproportionate emphasis on professional programs. Like, mm. can you be a liberal arts school if most of your students really are there to train for a very specific career, not primarily for the broad education that we associate with the liberal arts? That, that That's actually a, a more significant reservation I would have than, than the sports one. That's true. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it does present challenges, mostly, um, I'm not sure it's really about the liberal arts, it's more about um, where the kind of ethical compromises, the kind of culture that seems to come with, you know, certainly in the money-making sports and at the power conference level, you know, right. is, and so like, I think Baylor is a really good test case. And I have a lot of friends, many of whom actually went to Notre Dame who are at Baylor and really wrestle with that. Right. Um, at the same time, like they're not facing job cuts right now because they have a football program and it's it's a revenue generator for them. Right. But that it's also been a controversy generator, too. It has. Yeah, that's absolutely true. OK, so we I, we might still come back to this before we're done. We haven't even written the final essay yet. So maybe we'll <laughs> revisit higher ed in some ways. Certainly Christianity and sports. The word imagine. Probably, I hope so. But let's pivot to uh, our third quarter in our kind of accelerating four quarters. We're kind of sprinting through the last two, Chris. Uh, but in our third quarter, I'm excited because now we turn really to your field of expertise, to the field of international relations. You know, I, I dabble in this as a historian of international relations, but this is really in your theory and praxis. And uh, as we wanted to look at the Olympics, at diplomacy in sports, uh, broadly what we think of as IR in sports, you suggested a book uh, put up by Columbia University Press a, while, a little while back by Victor Cha called Beyond the Final Score, The Politics of Sport in Asia. 
So uh, maybe just for not uh, the students, of course, have all read several chapters of this book and are intimately familiar with it at this point. But for our non-student listeners, can you just say a little bit about who Victor Cha is and what the book is about? Sure. Uh, Cha is a professor. Um, he's at uh, Georgetown. And he's also been in uh, the political world uh, during the Obama administration. He was part of the National Security Council uh, and specifically specializing in Korea. Um, he worked on the six-party talks uh, during that during that administration and actually did some advising even prior to that with the Bush administration as well. And um, is pretty well acquainted with East Asian politics, but specifically the issues on the peninsula. And so... He's a like you and I, sort of academics who got interested in uh, sports and thought, what, are, what do our disciplines have to say about sports? Shah did the same thing. Shah has been teaching and writing about foreign affairs and especially East Asian affairs and decided to plug into what uh, the uh, what international sport says about that. And his, his lens he's looked at is the Olympics. Right. So he's got a couple test cases specifically to look at here. He's got the, um, he's got the Tokyo Games. Uh, he's got the uh, Seoul games and he's got uh, the, the Beijing games. And this book was written, I think, back in 2009. Mm -hmm. And so it's a little bit dated. Uh, so he doesn't really have anything much to say about this year's uh, planned Tokyo games, now the 2021 Tokyo games. Right. Uh, but that sort of looms over my selection of this book, too. I, right. I wanted students to be really well familiar with the Olympics mm -hmm. going into an Olympiad. That was sort of my, one of my goals here. Right. And I think it's very effective. I mean, it is 10 some years old, but I, I think it, it seems very timely. The issues he's raising have not gone away. Um, the kind of themes he wants to explore are still pertinent. Now, I did want to ask you, as, as our resident IR uh, specialist, um, I think it's in chapter two. He's kind of an assessment of the state of the field and how sports does and doesn't fit into it. Is, is his assessment right. of sports and international relations as a field fair? It, it, I mean, he makes it sound very peripheral or incidental. And that there's certainly no coherent theory growing around international relations and sports, although certain questions are being asked. Yeah, I think it's generally fair. Now, I will pick at him in two directions. I think there's two ways you could say you could quibble with his his basic claim, which is that we don't think enough about sports. We don't think enough about sort of these um, what we've in the past in this class called sort of liturgical spectacles, these ways of, of understanding society and development of society through these participations in sports. He would say that international relations has overlooked that. We care too much about uh, guns and bombs and material power. We care too much about uh, international political economy and, and the size of your GDP. And we ignore some of these other things. I think that's changed in two ways. Uh, or there's two ways to pick at it. Uh, the first way, a little more materialist way, is uh, been typified by Joe Nye. And Joe Nye is also mm -hmm. a former Clinton administration official um, who has written a lot about the concept of soft power. Mm -hmm. And and uh, Cha mentioned soft power here, but soft power is this notion that uh, the very attractiveness of a country, uh, broadly interpreted, whatever attractiveness can mean, uh, the attractiveness of your values, the attractiveness of your culture, the attractiveness of your cultural products, um, at the time Nye was coining this term, he argued that people love America, not just because of our democracy, but because of our Baywatch, um, <laughs> that the, the sorts of, the sorts of cultural products we put out into the world, uh, people love, uh, America because of Prince, 
um, and not just because of capitalism. And so the 90s, the 90s were a simpler time. Yes, right, right. No, but so, it, it does show up. So like Chad talks about Australia, for example. Exactly. Right? It's, it, its power does not derive from an especially enormous military or share of the world's GDP, but sports does create a certain image of Australia on the world scene. Right. And we can actually track this. There's uh, the World Values Project, for example, is a long-term running uh, poll which measures affect of various populations towards other countries. And we can, it's really like an international popularity contest. We can see which countries are popular amongst the citizenry of other countries over time. Huh. And uh, the United States is a very mixed bag, but some countries like Australia, like Canada, really punch above their weight in terms of how popular they are globally. Mm -hmm. And so... That's, that's one way. The other way I'd say, and, and I'm going to get in some deeper weeds here because I am not a critical theorist, but um, I think there is a critical theory approach to criticizing Cha here too, which is to say, and I'm thinking about someone like uh, Pierre Bourdieu or what, someone from uh, sort of the, um, the European school, which would argue that the very nature of the kinds of sports we play and the kinds of practices that we daily live out, the fact that you get up in the morning and check the soccer scores in Iran or yeah, you get up and check the baseball scores in America mm -hmm. actually shapes how we think about the world. It shaped, you know, football might actually change how American presidents think about international politics. Mm -hmm. Not that they're so simplistic that they think about the international international politics as a gridiron game, but we can't just grow. We can't grow up for 20 years thinking about football and then get into politics and not have that influence it. And uh -huh. so there's this sort of, this notion that these things matter, these, these, these games we play teach us something about who we are and who the world is. So it's and not just political language. It actually shapes our, the way we interpret. Yeah, it's sort of like our, our, our hardwiring, I suppose. Huh. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Um, so, for example, uh, this is one more uh, one example that this shows up quite commonly uh, in writing about uh, China. And as, as China comes to power is that um, America, the classic game of strategy is is chess right it's a and it's a zero-sum game you either win or you lose a game of chess and um you do so by destroying the other person's pieces and eventually capturing their weakened king um go, the the chinese game is go and go is, is far more complicated and there are multiple strategic uh approaches by which you can win go and, and not all of them are, are just decimation of the of your opponent sometimes it's putting your opponent in such a position that they are forced to um, concede to you because they have no more opportunities for their own growth, right? And so there are other kinds of ways of thinking about this. You know, if that's the game that those you know uh, Chinese leaders grew up playing, that's going to change how they think about um, politics, maybe. Well, I would love to extrapolate this to the effects of curling on Justin Trudeau, but um, <laughs> let, let's stick with China because you had students watch over the weekend uh, at least part of the opening ceremonies from the 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing. Yeah. And so uh, I wonder um, you know, what, what you hope students took away and maybe to relate this to one or more of Cha's key themes. So he talks about how sports can reflect, shape, promote national identity and prestige, how they mm -hmm. can facilitate diplomacy or maybe lead to further conflict, and also how sports can act as agents of political, economic, other kinds of change. So right. which of those did you most hope students would glimpse or glean from the opening ceremonies in Beijing? Well, I'll just say this first. I 
have found very few benefits to having to rapidly put this class online. But one of the few benefits was saying, oh, there's this four hour opening ceremonies from, from 2008. And I'd like you to watch 75 minutes of it. Um, you know, we couldn't possibly do that in class. And I, so I, you know, that was one of the, one of the small redeeming values of doing this online quickly. But I, I, I remember I had just started at Bethel. It was the you know summer of 2008. I had moved mm -hmm. up to Minnesota, um, and I had like this little 25-inch uh, TV, and I watched the opening ceremonies. And I remember just—I don't remember how you felt about it. I don't. Was this memorable to you? Um, uh, it was because we had just moved to our house. I mean, it was literally as the games were happening, and we had just put a TV up. We, we didn't have kids yet, and so all we did was each night watch center living room watching the Beijing games. Yeah, I remember just being staggered by those opening mm -hmm. ceremonies. They're, um, they're stunning in a couple of ways. And really the way that I think about them says more about how I think than it says about China. Um, which is to say that there are these huge games, these huge opening ceremonies, that the budget was enormous for them. But it's also notable how many physical people are present in the opening ceremonies. There's just uh, literally at, uh, at various times, hundreds and then sometimes thousands of people uh, uh, participating in the opening ceremonies and not in ways where they're disguised by huge costumes. Oftentimes they're just present. And I think the enduring image for me is the, uh, the drummers. There's mm -hmm. this point at which there's maybe, it looks like a thousand or more uh, men similarly clad uh, playing these large, um, um, Cajon type drums. And the effect is both uh, auditory um, and it's all and visual mm -hmm. and um, and staggering. And it says a couple of things to me. It says it reminds me China is an enormous place mm -hmm. and China is a powerful place. And a China is a coordinated place. Now, I'm saying that as an American who studies politics. So I'm thinking about China's representing itself as powerful, organized the Communist Party sort of controlling and, and systematizing things in China. Um, I'm not sure if that's how that's, that, that message is interpreted by someone from China, but as an American, I saw that and thought, China did not come to play at these Olympics. China came to dominate at these Olympics. No, I mean, China calls it you know, a coming out party, right? In the same oh, way absolutely. that the school Olympics were for South Korea. It made me think of um, a World War II era American propaganda film that I use in Cold War in a World War II and the Cold War class. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's the um, Why We Fight series from Frank Capra. Oh. And the yep. Battle of China is a really fascinating one because it starts with 10 minutes. Um, and it, 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 it hits a lot of the same themes, the vastness of China, the sheer number of people, the richness, the diversity, the depths of history, you know, that when Jesus was around, China already had been civilized for 500, I mean, that kind of theme. Yeah, it yeah. was all very paternalistic, right? It, it was America <laughs> adopting this kind of ancient civilization as its younger brother that we should try to go defend against the big bad Japanese, but it was entirely mm -hmm. through an American prism. This was getting some of those same notes, but China is playing all those notes. And it was both ancient and utterly modern at the same time. Like right. I, I try to think about that alongside what Cha had to say about the various campaigns to kind of modernize the city of Beijing, the environmental cleanup that was going on. Uh, I think toilets came up as one of the themes he was talking about. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, it was like this fascinating, like it was, it was deeply connected to all this ancient history and culture, but it was also this statement of China is a superpower of the 21st century. And right. yeah.
And I, as I say, and I, I didn't assign this, but if you go back and watch the 2012 games in, in London and compare the opening ceremonies, it's the difference is striking. Uh, mm-hmm. The London opening ceremonies featured James Bond flying in on a helicopter and then a stunt, I can only hope is a stunt person disguised as the queen, um, parachuting into the stadium with James. Um, it's a very cheeky, funny opening yeah. ceremonies, right? The Spice Girls perform. My goodness. Um, it's it's silly at times. There's nothing silly about this Chinese the no. Beijing opening ceremonies. It's 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 proud and it's reverent at times and um and very much a coming out party. It was. Um, so we're going to talk more about the Olympics in segment two. We're going to do our Mount Rushmore game of Olympic history, and we'll be interested to see if the Beijing Olympics make the cut for our final four. Um, before we get there, Chris, can you just maybe briefly explain to students what their assignment is? For They've got a couple of short qu- uh, quizzes, but they also have a book right. review to write, right? Right. So we had initially, well, back when the class was going to be in person, we had thought about having students in their PLC teams playing uh, different cities and basically bidding for the Olympics. And we had sort of a game we'd worked out of how we were going to have them bid for the Olympics. Uh, We had a good time with the uh, stadium simulation that we did two weeks ago, but we feel better about put a retiring the Olympic bidding ceremony for early Olympic sitting simulation for now. And so instead of that, we really want people to engage deeply with this Victor Cha book. And so uh, we're going to have people write a review of this Cha book and that's going to be due um, in eight days and a week from tomorrow on. And uh, students will have a chance to sort of interact with the book, uh, explain uh, what they see as positives and negatives um, about the book itself. And that will be sort of the big writing assignment for this unit of the class. Yeah, I, I think it's, I enjoyed the simulation and I love the bidding idea. I think partly because of timing, partly because I actually like this assignment too. Like one thing students that, I don't know how interesting this is to you, but the kind of role that this class plays in the genetic curriculum is not just to get at some of the kind of modern enlightenment liberal values we keep talking about and to talk about American history in the, in the present, but also as a writing class. And it's not to write especially long assignments, but to do a lot of relatively short assignments where you have to engage with different kinds of sources. And so you've done that a lot of different ways with our different group projects. Now you get a chance to write a more formal kind of book review essay. And I think that's actually a pretty exactly. good assignment for most students in a liberal arts setting to do. Absolutely. So, yep. So that'll be due the, uh, on Friday. I think it's May 1st, right? But check Moodle for that's all right. these details, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So that will wrap up our first segment. After our break, we'll come back and talk about a Mount Rushmore of the greatest events in Olympic history. This week in sports history. New York, New York, April 24th, 2004. Coming off a 4-12 and season, the San Diego Chargers select Eli Manning with the number one pick in the NFL draft. Manning forces a trade to the New York Giants, who finished 6-10 that season. The Chargers go on to win their first division title in 10 years behind another rookie quarterback, Philip Rivers. Antwerp, Belgium, April 25th, 1920. In the last Olympic figure skating competition held before the advent of the Winter Games, Magda Yulin and Sveanorin of Sweden take gold and silver. American Teresa Weld finishes third, losing points because some judges were upset that she included jumps in her program. 
Buenos Aires, Argentina, April 26, 1991. A year after leading Argentina to second place in soccer's World Cup, Diego Maradona is arrested for cocaine possession. He comes back in 1984 to score a goal in the first match of the World Cup, then is suspended again after failing another drug test. St. Louis, Missouri, April 23, 1954. Milwaukee Braves right fielder Henry Hank Aaron hits his first major league home run off Vic Rashi of the Cardinals. 20 years to the month later, Aaron broke Babe Ruth's record by hitting his 715th career home run. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Welcome back to segment two of this week's episode of the 252, an Olympic-themed episode. So we thought we'd bring out our old favorite game, Mount Rushmore of, and attach it to Olympic history. So, Chris, can you explain what students were doing this week to help feed this segment of the, the podcast? Sure. One of our favorite, um, it's it's Bethical, so I can't call this a bar conversation, um, but one of our favorite sort of um, happy hour conversations is to think about what kinds of uh um, Mount Rushmore's we can build. What's you know we have a Mount Rushmore of of, of presidents. We've we've now in the class assembled a Mount Rushmore of African American American athletes. Um, what other kinds of Mount Rushmores could we could we assemble? And we've been doing that over the course of the two five two. And now we've gotten our students involved in it as well. So the prompt we gave them this week was to come up with their own personal Mount Rushmore of historical or political events at the Olympics. Right. This is not premier Olympic athletes, but athlete, but events that occurred, which could involve an athlete, uh, mm-hmm. which were politically or historically significant in the context of the Olympics. And they really caught the spirit of the assignment. So a lot of the submissions we got really did represent sort of those things that really go beyond the games themselves. Right. So students did this individually, and then we had them get in their PLC teams to narrow it down. Right. So each team gave us four, their top four, plus a couple of honorable mentions. So as we did last time with African-American sports history, I just went through, tabulated, gave a vote to any event that was in the top four, and then I gave a half vote to any honorable mentions. <laughs> uh, I would say in this case, like, there was a much more disparate, I'm sure there's a poli-sci term for this, Chris, but there's a much more disparate field of candidates here. Uh, we've got- A high standard of deviation. There it is. That sounds social science-y, and that's why I don't understand it. Uh, so let, let's go with the top two, because I think these are not yeah. surprising, and probably we don't need to waste a lot of time discussing them. Uh, right. I think all but one group, and maybe all of them did, but just about there is universal belief that Jesse Owens winning his four gold medals at the Nazi Olympics in 1936 in Berlin as a black man in front of a white supremacist regime is very worthy of inclusion on a Mount Rushmore of Olympic history. Do we need to talk any further about that? Nine, nine of 10 groups included this in one of their top four. It's, it seems it's as solid a lock as anyone come up with. 
Uh, I think one group even tried to put it in twice. They talked about Owen's personal achievement. Then they also thought simply that the Nazi party was using this uh, as, I mean, as an example of Cha's theme that the Olympics are never really apolitical. Um, it makes it worthy. Um, not quite as popular, but getting a majority or at least half the votes. Uh, Mexico City, 1968, not because mm -hmm. of Bob Beeman necessarily, oh, that was great individual achievement, but the protests. So there, there was actually a larger protest uh, about Mexican politics going on that was quite brutally crushed by the police. At least one group mentioned that. But of course, mostly people are thinking about the medal stand after the 400 meter race, the Smith-Carlos Black Power protest, which I think we talked about on our race and sports podcast as well. And let me just say, Chris, these two first events, the Jesse Owens performance in, in mm -hmm. 1936 in Nazi Germany and the uh, Smith-Carlos protest in Mexico City represent two different ways of using the Olympics as a lens for understanding international politics, right? Mm -hmm. In the case of the uh, Owens performance, you really do have sort of Jesse Owens himself didn't like, you know, run up in the stands and punch Hitler in the face uh, or something like that. This was just simply a sprinter being great at his profession. And yet it was done in the context of this otherwise political climate, the rise of the Nazi party um, and all that that entailed. And so the, the Olympics served as a, um, a, a lens through which we could understand world politics, understand these events sort of symbolically uh, me having larger meaning. In contrast, the Smith-Carlos protest really brings the politics into the Olympics itself. Mm -hmm. And so they, it, it's about a protest that occurs in the Olympics rather than the Olympics being um, a leitmotif for, for something broader happening. What's interesting, though, is what didn't happen at either of these games. Uh, in both cases, there were attempts made to organize a significant athlete boycott Yes. So I think we even mentioned this from Mexico City when we talked about Harry Edwards, the sociologist and activist, tried to organize a boycott by black athletes. And Smith-Carlo is what we think of as actually a kind of vestige of that. Um, maybe less well-known, although I think I mentioned it in the Olympics and religion article students read, is that there was an attempt to organize uh, a boycott by Jewish athletes of the Nazi mm -hmm. games. And that actually included some of Owen's teammates on the track and field team uh, for the U.S. medal, uh, the U.S. Um, the U.S. team, and it was headed off among other people by Avery Brendage, who was leading figure on the U.S. Olympic Committee, eventually the International Olympic Committee, and I think is mentioned a couple times by Cha as an example of this Olympic ideal, like you can somehow take politics out of sports. And, and Brundage thought it would cheapen sports or take away the integrity of the games to politicize them. So that's kind of in the background of both those games. And I think they're both very good candidates. Okay, let me go. Th I won't go through all of these, but let me go through at least the um, handful of events that got multiple votes according to my, my system. So right. with th uh, number three, with three and a half votes, the terrorist attacks in Munich, uh, really on the mm -hmm. eve of the summer games, then running into the summer games. Three votes each for the Paris, the first Paris summer games of 1900, but that was the first games that women participated in. And three votes for the miracle on ice in the Winter Olympics at Lake Placid, 1980. Okay, a lot, of, a lot of events got two and a half votes. The first modern Olympics, 1996 in Athens. The first Paralympics, which really were 1960 in Rome, but there had been uh, wheelchair games as part of the 48 London Games. Rome was also, so a separate reason, the Rome Olympics in 1960 were the first to be fully televised. Uh, they actually, of course, we didn't really have satellite TV at that point, so they actually would fly the tapes on a jet across the Atlantic Ocean to New York and then broadcast from there, and they did it 
there are some same-day events using that very difficult system. Wow. Uh, 1980, the Summer Games were in Moscow, as uh, Chris mentioned in his lecture. This was after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, Christmas Eve 79, and Jimmy Carter decided to boycott those games. And uh, Chris mentioned we weren't really aiming for personal athletic achievement, but there were votes cast for everyone from Usain Bolt to Simone Biles. And the one who got the most mentioned here was Michael Phelps, which I kind of coalesced around the 2012 London Games when he set the record for most individual Olympic medals won. Right. And then finally, two votes uh, to the Rio Games of 2016, both because it was the first South American Games and multiple groups mentioned the refugee team that was assembled and marched in the opening, at least the opening, maybe the closing ceremonies uh, as well. Um, so there are many other things. The dream team in Barcelona came up, the African boycott of the Montreal Olympics in 76 came up, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I think maybe we, as we pick our third and fourth spots, maybe we should look at those events that got multiple votes. But before we do that, I'm curious, was there anything that didn't show up that you were like, oh, that, that surprised you? Hmm. Um, I was a little surprised that because we made such a big deal, the Beijing games, actually, mm -hmm. it felt like we had kind of primed them to see that as an important case of so many things Chow was talking about. The Soviet uh, boycott of the 84 LA games was never mentioned. And I thought that probably should have gotten at least an honorable mention somewhere. Yeah. One, one thing that jumped out at me, and yeah. this ties into both the, the U.S. boycott in 80, the Miracle on Ice and the Soviet boycott, was thinking about, and this is maybe like a, a personal memory more, but thinking about in 92, that was after the fall of the Soviet Union and the, the idea that there was, quote, the unified team, which was, it was the Soviet team, but they were no longer the Soviet Union. And it was all, it was thinking about how the political situation had to sort of figure out what to do in the Olympics. So you had this team of, you know, these, what would become separate nations and things like that, that, that was, uh, that was one of the first times I think as an Olympic viewer for me that I, cause I wasn't old enough in 80 or 84 to really think about what things meant that I was seeing mm -hmm. global politics really playing out in the Olympics. Can I tell you briefly about my favorite right. piece of Olympic slash American foreign policy propaganda, um, which is uh, in 92, this, this is the dream team, right? Um, you've got, uh, it's also just coming off mm -hmm. of operation desert storm and American patriotism is riding high. And I distinctly remember my friend Chad had a poster in his room. It was, uh, um, it was in red, white, and blue. It was of Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, uh, uh, both dunking, sort of uh, overlaid with F-16 jets. And it said, and I quote, the Joint Chiefs of Stuff. <laughs> I love that. And that was a real poster that Nike That's put fantastic. out. Somebody, I'm sure it was Nike, but somebody put out in '92 for the. It was for the Dream Team, and it was the Joint Chiefs of Stuff, Pippen and Jordan. Yeah. And I thought, now, now I think back at that, like, wow, what a conflation! What an amazing conflation of American military superiority and basketball superiority. I I do partly want to move. <clears throat> the Barcelona games up a little bit and it's because of the dream team, but actually the, the groups that mentioned it, it wasn't just American patriotism or that the Jordan documentary just came out there thinking about it. But the, the fact that it does seem like a kind of moment where we see professionalism becoming just woven into the Olympic fabric, which is another thing Avery Brundage had resisted forever. Mm -hmm. Like the Olympics was this, one of these last holdouts with the NCAA of this old ideal of amateurism. And as Chris talked about in lecture, like this, this is complicated. It means different things in different sports. But I feel like this does stand in 
for other sports experiencing their own versions of this. I mean, you could talk about hockey and the Winter Olympics coming a few years after this and other sports becoming professionalized in their own way. But that is a pretty significant change. And I think we see it most clearly by thinking about Jordan and Magic and Stockton and the others playing on the Dream Team. Right, right. Um, what about other, what, what stands out as you look at that group that doesn't quite get to like even the Smith-Carlos protest level, but clearly multiple student groups thought it was important. What, what are you most strongly convinced belongs on Mount Rushmore, you guys? I'm, I'm sort of working through this process a little bit nation-wise, and I feel like as much as I admire Michael Phelps for his, um, his individual performance, and even if he was a team, even if this was sort of a dominant team performance, I think you still need to set that aside. Um, and likewise, I, I think you just set aside the American boycott of Moscow in as much as you, you set aside the Soviet boycott of L.A. Um, because those are events where the Olympics, they, they're a thing that didn't happen. So I think we should maybe hold off on including a boycott, per se. Um, that's where I'm at so far. I... The first modern Olympics is important. Is it politically or historically significant? It's historically significant in the sense that you need to have a first so that you can have a second, I suppose. I mean, I, I would I would think the, you know, go four years later, the the first women's events in Paris. I mean, that's that's the Olympics being pretty early on the curve in terms of of women's sports. So it's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that in a while. So I dug back in to see what events were being contested by women. And it's interesting. It kind of matches some of what we had said in our pre-spring break week of what sports were being open to women at the turn of the century. So golf is on there. Tennis is on there. Croquet was actually a sport uh, in Paris in 1900. Um, the first woman to actually win a medal was part of a mixed gender sailing team. Hmm. Uh, so, it, but it was, it was, it, it kind of fits this notion that we talked about in class of uh, there are certain sports that befit the gender identity and roles of women but then there are others that do not. For example, I would almost want to say a more significant moment there would be 1912, uh, which is when I think swimming becomes an event for women in Stockholm. And then really 1928 in Amsterdam is when you get track and field, which is really the premier defining to me Olympic event. That's when you get the first women running in at least sprints, medium distance and doing some field events. Um, and that's where you start to see more of that controversy about is this appropriate behavior for women, but that's also what leads to someone like Babe Didrikson Zaharias, who wins medals at the 32 Olympics in Los Angeles. But I, I would agree. I would certainly take that over the Athens Games, which if you could somehow time travel back to Athens in 1896, I think you'd be astonished that that's what the Olympics looked like. Just mm -hmm. the, the, the scale and the kind of spectacle right. was, was not there yet. Um, I, I'm glad students Can thought to include. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. Um, I like the fact, the inclusion of the Munich, uh, terrorist attacks. I mean, just because of my interest in that, um, not should be clear here. I teach a class on terrorism and counterterrorism at Bethel. Um, I thought you just liked the Eric uh, Bana film Munich. Uh, well, that too, actually, but there are other, um, violent events that have surrounded uh, Olympics. The 96, uh, Atlanta bombing comes to mind. So I, I, I think we should include it, but I think we should include it as representative of a broader class of things rather than in and of itself being insignificant. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? I was going to advocate. I was going to advocate for it again because it's something uh, Victor Chad noted. He quoted the PLO leader. I mean, trying to explain why you would do this at the Olympics, and he said, "Well, this is the religion of the modern age." 
I, I, I kind of want to nod to it in that. I mean, in a sense, like this is not purely driven by religious conflict, but in a kind of clash of civilizations way, like it's this kind of older form of religious uh, and nationalistic and ethnic feeling coming against a modern version of religious feeling. Right. And, and so I'd, I'd be fine with including it for multiple reasons, actually. Okay. Um, I was going to say, I'm glad some student groups thought to even talk about the, the first Paralympics. And it's interesting how that comes out of World War II and some therapeutic techniques being used um, for wounded soldiers. Um, so if it makes it, that'd be great. I would also say, uh, as we think ahead to the last couple of topics in the class, I've been thinking about something on, um, uh, we're calling it really sports in the human body. We'll talk about performance enhancement, transhumanism, but we're actually going to talk about the Paralympics again there. And that's something we'll come back to and think about how we think about what it means to compete when technology is allowed. We'll talk about ableism, maybe even a little, little bit at that point. So it, I'm glad it's there, at least as a foreshadowing of later themes. All right. We, we agree on three for sure. We agree on Owens, Smith Carlos. Mm -hmm. So the, 30, the 68 Olympics. We agree on Munich in 72. Um, we need to put one more in there. Are we leading Paralympics? I'm, I think we need to give some, some consideration to the miracle on ice too. Um, this is, if we're, if we're looking for one Olympics that characterizes the intense cold war competition, uh, between the Soviet union and its satellite States and the United States and its allies during the cold war, you could, you could do a lot worse than the miracle on ice. I, so I actually have a question with this exercise. Are we putting the event or the or the Olympic Games on? Because I actually think if you're looking at 1960 with the Paralympics and then pairing that with the Olympics being televised, hmm. that, that actually mm -hmm. kicks that up to me because, quite frankly, I don't think any of us have ever been to an Olympics, but we've all experienced the Olympics. And there is something mm -hmm. about sports and media that I think um, uh, is, is significant. So if, if we're thinking about selecting that year's games combining paralympics and t being televised is a pretty powerful thing i was going to add one more layer if we were allowed to kind of combine arguments for a single olympiad i mean part of me wants to put at least one winter olympiad on there and so i'd bump the miracle on ice up just to acknowledge that that's a significant part of it but in addition to what sam just said about rome i mean if you think about who the really significant at least american athletes are they're all african-american you know, it's Cassius Clay, the future Muhammad Ali winning light heavyweight gold. It's Rayford Johnson winning decathlon. And it's Wilma Rudolph winning three gold medals in track and field. Right. I mean, at a moment, this is also right in the middle of the civil rights movement. That's what's being televised is African-Americans are really the stars of the American games in the first televised games. Hmm. So I, I have to say, I never would have thought of the Rome Olympics as blowing up there. Um, but there are some, you know, three pretty compelling reasons to include them as a kind of single games representing all these different trends. Yeah, I really buy what Sam's selling here on the idea that uh, television becomes such an integral part of our understanding of the Olympics. And this is a way of recognizing the origins of that. Okay, so it sounds like we've got our Mount Rushmore of the Olympics in chronological order. Jesse Owens winning four golds in Berlin. The Rome Summer Olympics of 1960 being televised, being followed by Paralympics and featuring several African-American stars. Uh, the Smith-Carlos protests in Mexico City in 1968 and the tragic terrorist attack in Munich in 1972. It's a pretty yeah. good Mount Rushmore. We could keep arguing, but that's the beauty of this exercise, right? <laughs> Absolutely.
So listeners, students, if you want to write in and make your argument for what you think belongs on there, how, how do they get in touch with us again, Sam or Chris? Because I honestly do keep forgetting this. <laughs> they can email us uh, at uh, channel3900 at gmail.com. That's right. I'll remember it next time. Okay, we're going to wrap things up after one more short break. <laughs> touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com. We're back, and as always, we are running short on time. My kids need the computers, so let's go straight to three to see. Without televised sports, what are some things that students and other listeners should put their eyeballs on? Chris Moore, get us started. Well, this is partially a recommendation and partially a tribute to my good friend and podcast boss, Sam Mulberry. A few years ago, we began this podcasting adventure, and Sam suggested around that time to me, no, not suggested, cajoled me into reading Robert Cooper's novel, The Universal Baseball Association Incorporated, J. Henry Waugh, Proprietor. This 1968 novel is dark, funny exploration of the interior fantasies we invest in. In the case of the main character, a baseball league. You should definitely read this novel if you've ever been in a fantasy league of any kind. You should read it if you've ever found yourself participating in myth-making of any kind. It's wonderful. Thanks for making me read it, Sam. Wow, this, this, this Sam guy sounds great. I can't wait to hear what he's going to recommend next. He's the Sam. best. All right. Uh, so with the lack of sports to watch, my kids and I started watching old episodes of Cheap Seats on YouTube. It's one of my favorite old ESPN shows. If you've never seen Cheap Seats before, the basic elevator pitch would be something like, it's Mystery Science Theater 3000 meets ESPN Classic. Yes. Uh, I will say that some of the early 2000s humor has not aged the best, but I'm a sucker for the Sklar brothers, so I can power through that. Um, this weekend, we were watching the episode where they revisited the 2003 ISKA Karate Championships. Uh, the whole thing is pretty funny, but my jaw dropped when I hit the eighth minute of the show, and I saw 11, an 11-year-old with a name that was familiar. I was surprised that neither Randy or Jason mentioned anything on the show. Then I realized that the Cheap Seeds episode itself predated his acting career. So I did a little research, and it turns out that the 2003 ISKA Karate Championships, in fact, feature a blue-haired 11-year-old Taylor Lautner of Twilight fame. <laughs> you can find this by searching YouTube for Cheap Seats ISKA. That's fantastic. I remember he was on some late night show promoting one of the movies and started doing some karate or other martial arts moves and thought how weird it all makes sense now. <clears throat> well, Sam, I feel pretty bad because you clearly did a lot of research to turn up that little nugget. And I'm about to phone this one in. Not only is it short, but I actually had basically just my son do this. So I'd like to blame this all on COVID. But even before I knew what sheltering in place was, my son, Isaiah, had started watching Marble Bay Sports on YouTube. That's right. Marble Bay Sports. It started with the Marble Olympics, then the Marble World Cup, and now he's moved on to Marbula One. Formula One <laughs> Motorsports is done by marbles. That one's for you, Sarah Shady. All eight races of the season are on a YouTube channel called uh, Jellies, I think, Marble Runs. So search that. The first season just finished earlier this month. I won't give away the ending, but let's just say that things have a way of turning around in marble-based sports. It was oddly compelling for like two minutes at a time. I'll say that part. <laughs> 
We're getting a little yeah. desperate, but not too desperate. Right. I feel like we're doing pretty, pretty well so far. So uh, thanks again. Thanks, guys. Another good episode. It was fun to talk through the Olympics, higher ed, uh, many more things. We're looking forward to our next episode next week. Uh, until then, Chris, take us away. Thanks for listening to us. You can always get in touch with us, as Sam said, at channel3900 at gmail.com. Um, and touring our, your podcast feed again, go Royals. Go Royals.